afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy. Well, it was um, back in 1999, Maribel and I had some friends uh, back in California we were very close with, Eli and Rosemary, and they were a young couple like us who had uh, gotten married young and had a few children, and um, they had a three-year-old son um, who was our three-year-old son's age, and they even looked alike. Our son's name was Josiah, and their son's name was Jacob. And one day, uh, they went camping, and Rosemary had to make a trip back down the mountain to grab some stuff from the local uh, convenience store. And she told Eli she would be right back. And as she headed for the van, she was unaware that her son was trailing behind her. And uh, he was running after her from a distance, as children often do. And as she jumped in the van and threw the vehicle in reverse, she was unaware that her son, by this time, was standing right behind the van. And throwing the car into reverse, she accidentally and tragically ran him over and killed him. And when we heard the news a few days later, we were devastated. Um, Maribel and I, it was hard for us to handle... um, the news because their son and our son were the same age and we were close to them and our boys even looked alike. And so um, it hit so close to home um, that it just devastated us. We couldn't even go to work for the next few days. I found myself at work for months crying. I was mourning by proxy because it had hit so close to home. I cried for months. But what I felt was nothing in comparison to what his parents felt, Rosemary and Eli. The pain that a parent feels when a child dies is some of the most traumatic pain humans can feel. Even in a fallen world, it is totally unnatural for a child to die before their parents. When old people die, it's not entirely unexpected. You anticipate it. You um, expect it. It even makes sense when people who are along in years pass away. But when a young person dies, it utterly ravages the heart and mind because it's senseless. The death of a young person speaks louder about the brokenness of our world than almost anything else. In our passage this morning from Luke chapter 7, we're told that Jesus approaches a town called Nain. And Nain is about six miles southeast of Nazareth. 
still in the region of Capernaum. And the town name is cited in all four Gospels because it was close to the hometown of several of the apostles, and it was well known. And we read in verse 11, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So she's a widow, and Luke is careful to tell us that her only son has died. You can see the tragedy of her predicament. Her son is dead, and she's without a husband because he's died also. And this reminds us of Naomi in the book of Ruth, who had lost not only her husband, but her two sons also. And she was so grieved by her loss that she refused to be called Naomi and insisted that people call her Mara, which means bitter. Because the bitterness and tragedy of her life had come to define her existence. Acts 1 and 6, there was an outcry among the Greek-speaking Jews because the widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. In fact, ultimately later, this is why the apostles appoint deacons to care for widows. In James 1.27, we're told that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The care of widows is a major biblical theme. Deuteronomy 10.17 tells us, For the Lord your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow. God defines himself by the fact that he cares about the afflicted and the suffering and those who are grieving. God cares about widows. He identifies himself as one who cares for and executes justice for the orphan and the widow. In fact, as that passage goes on, it says also the alien and the stranger and have mercy on them because you were also aliens and strangers in the land of Egypt. So this woman wasn't just destitute of her husband's protection, but her condition is made all the more vulnerable by the fact that now her son, her only son, has died. She's alone in the world, grief-stricken. Life has become, like Naomi in the book of Ruth, bitter and cold, and she mourns. And we're told that a great crowd was with her in the funeral procession. Because people are buried outside of the city, she is walking outside of the city with this great crowd of people following her as Jesus and his multitude are entering the city. And at this moment, at this very moment, 
of the funeral procession exiting the city, Jesus and his multitude entering the city, there is this collision of the two groups. If you can picture in your mind's eye the scene, these two large groups having nothing to do with each other, walking in opposite directions, and for a moment, they meet and become intermingled. They're passing through each other's midst, and you know you can, you can perceive for a moment that they, they may not really realize what's going on, except they hear the sound of wailing, and they hear the sound of crying. And in Jewish custom, usually the mother walks ahead of the coffin and the pallbearers, and she is weeping. And what's important for us not to miss is that Jesus targets the marginalized. If anyone figured out what was going on, Jesus was the first to recognize what was happening. Jesus, after all, is filled with God's compassion and concern for the widow because he is the exact representation of God's nature. A human transcript of God's divine compassion. In his person, in his body, in his life and ministry, Jesus is everything that God is for the afflicted and the grief-stricken in the flesh. And Jesus approaches this woman. Now, up until this point in the book of Luke, people have solicited Jesus for healing favors. Peter comes to Jesus because his mother-in-law is on the verge of death. They, they, they bring the leper uh, to Jesus. They lower him down through the roof. Up until this point, people are coming to Jesus asking him for healing and for deliverance. But this woman does not say anything to Jesus. She's too distracted with grief. And Jesus, unsolicited, without being prompted or asked, approaches her in verse 13. And it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. You might be thinking that's a strange request from a man or a prophet to say to a mother who had just lost her only son. Don't weep. And we might think she was quietly shedding tears in some dignified way, you know, a quiet, uh, you know, just a, you know, under her breath weeping. But um, the word used here for weep is the same word used when Peter heard the rooster crow and recognized and realized and remembered Jesus's words that he would deny him. And the Bible says that Peter wept bitterly. This woman was not just crying, she was weeping bitterly. Vehemently, uncontrollably, a grievous wailing that people could hear from a distance. Imagine hearing your neighbor scream a block away, finding out that a child had passed away. When we went to the cemetery to bury Rosemary's son, 
That quiet air was pierced with the sound, the loud sound of wailing and lament. The pastor began to speak at that moment, and right at that moment, and my wife can attest to this, a powerful wind blew through the trees as we offered that little boy up into the arms of God. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before or since. And as we wept, it felt like heaven mourned with us that day. And looking back all these years later, that was back in 1999, I can recognize that God himself entered into our grief. Unsolicited, Jesus, filled with compassion, entered into this woman's grief. In Jesus' mind, what was happening to this woman was not okay. It wasn't okay what was happening to her. And you know, Jesus didn't immediately fix all the injustice in the world, but this one, this tragedy, he couldn't let slide. Verse 14 tells us he came up and touched the buyer. The buyer is like uh, a wooden uh, plank or carrier for a corpse. It's not exactly a coffin, but if you've ever seen even modern funerals in the Middle East to this day will carry uh, a dead person on kind of a, uh, a wood plank that people carry. It's kind of like a coffin, but not exactly. And Jesus came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. Now, in normal Jewish custom, according to Leviticus, uh, if you were to touch a coffin, let alone a corpse, you were made unclean. But when it came to human need, Jesus disregarded uh, those rituals. Remember a few sermons back when Jesus and the disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath. In his mind, human need always supersedes rituals and regulations. And he said to the young man, I say to you, arise. Now, I don't know if he said it like I just said it. He may have said, I say to you, arise. You can imagine he raised his voice so that the whole multitude heard him. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Can you imagine that scene for a moment? Jesus says to a dead man, and in those days, dead people were wrapped in grave clothes. It was not a full mummification process, but it was part of ancient Near Eastern culture to prepare a body for burial, to clean the body, to put uh, burial fragrances on a body, to honor and dignify this person who had passed away and to even wrap them. And Jesus speaks to the man and he sits up and he speaks. I mean, I wonder what he said. I'm hungry. Or what am I doing here? Or would someone please help take these clothes, you know, these you know, these uh these this 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 clothing off me, these garments off of my face. And it was as if Jesus was withdrawing against the future dividends of his atonement and defeat of death on the cross. 
He had not yet been, he had not yet died on the cross. He had not yet defeated death on the cross through his atonement and sacrifice. But that was okay. He was withdrawing against those future dividends that he would invest not long after this event on the cross. And this is somewhat of a clandestine miracle. We don't know this one as well as the other miracles like raising Lazarus from the dead. And that might be because this man is only identified in relation and with reference to his mother. We're told he is the only son of his mother. Jesus has compassion on her. And this is surprising because in a social context in which females aren't typically, they are typically identified in relationship to males, it is the woman here we're supposed to focus on. And raising her son to life means restoration to her community, and that's the whole point. When Jesus has compassion on this woman, it is not simply that her husband is gone, right? People die. It is not simply that her son is now gone. As tragic as it is, sometimes children die. What Jesus recognizes and what this miracle is an emblem of is Jesus is restoring the fortunes of the marginalized in society. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus did a miracle for the centurion. He is also someone on the, on the edge of Jewish religious society, and Jesus does a miracle for this pagan. But no one is probably more powerless in first century Jewish culture, more vulnerable than a widow without a son. And this miracle is Jesus restoring her to her community. And there's a parallel with 1 Kings 17, which the prophet Elijah revives the dead son of the widow of Zarephath. And so there are many similarities here. And if you are in the crowd, whether following Jesus or you are with the crowd of the widow, In your mind, if you know your Hebrew scriptures, you are thinking, this is like the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 when he visits the widow of Zarephath and her son dies in his presence. And he lays his body over the son three times and pleads with Yahweh to raise that child. And the child comes back to life. Now, the difference here is that Jesus doesn't cry out to the Father to raise this child. Why? Because Jesus is more than a prophet. He himself, in his person, is invested all power and authority. All heavenly power, all cosmic power is invested in Jesus. All he has to do is speak the word. Same thing last week when we looked at the centurion's servant. He said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home, but just speak the word. This is like any other prophet. 
This isn't like anything else they have ever seen a man who in his words alone has the power to raise the dead. And the boy comes to life. He sits up. He speaks. I mean, I can imagine the crowd being frozen in astonishment. You know, I don't know if you've ever had something happen to you that just utterly shocked the senses. It was so amazing. My daughter and I, last night, we were uh, bored and we we're on YouTube and we were watching uh, David Blaine, the magician, the, the magician. Some of you know who that is. And it was in his early days and it was called What is Magic? And he goes around to, you know, just kind of working class blue collar folks and, you know, the South and Kentucky and New York City and he's doing magic. And the look on people's faces, because he's a good magician. He's good at what he does. But Jesus, of course, is no magician. What he's doing is real. He's not tricking people. He's really doing the impossible. And no doubt when he did this, the collective memory of the people of Nain, either consciously or subconsciously, is triggered, and they say in verse 16, it says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, and they said, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. God cared deeply about the grief, about the affliction, and the suffering of this widow. In her book, First, we quit our jobs. Marilyn Abraham writes, we signed up for a hike with a ranger who told us a remarkable thing. When a tree's life is stressed or threatened by the elements of fire, drought, or other calamity, it twists beneath its bark to reinforce and make itself stronger. On the surface, this New inner strength may not be visible, for the bark often continues to give the same vertical appearance. Only when the exterior is stripped away or when the tree is cut down are its inner struggles revealed. God can use our grief to strengthen us in ways that are not visible to the world. In sorrow and tragedy and loss, Christ is with us. He knows our pain. He enters into our grief. Jesus is more than just a great prophet. He had the power in himself and has the power in himself to this day to override death. When Martha, in John 11, grieving the death of her brother Lazarus, said to Jesus, Jesus said to her first, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even though they die, will live and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? 
And Christ's question to us is, he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe what Martha's response was? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And so the question for us is, do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who was promised to take away the sins of the world? Because if we do, we will never die. Yes, our outward bodies may decay. Our bodies may break down. I'm 42 now, and I complain to somebody that when I get out of bed, I have to stretch before I even put my shoes on. And my back starts to pop and creak, and I have sharp pain in my hip. And the outward man is wearing away. But the inward person is being renewed day by day. And Jesus says, if you believe who I am, that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who was promised to come into the world, you will never die. I spoke with Eli and Rosemary this week. I hadn't talked to them for years. And they're doing well. They told me that through it all, God has been faithful. They're growing in their walk with God. They're serving in their church. The Lord has blessed them with three other children, Priscilla and Richard and Isabella. And they are always encouraged to faithfulness by the knowledge that they will see their boy again in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you, O oh God, that you do not abandon us in our grief, but you enter into our suffering and our affliction. You're faithful. You have felt our afflictions and pains. You know what it is to suffer. Our grief and mourning is not foreign to you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you abide with us and you are with us. And unsolicited, often you have mercy and do great things, things we don't even know we ought to ask for. You see our need, you see pain, you see suffering. And though uh, the sharpness of that suffering is not always abated immediately, you help us and comfort us with great compassion. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.